Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 383. We are talking about how to drive all the more adaptability into your organizations. You'll learn one, ways to positively disrupt the way you work. Two, concrete ways to mind the ideas of your organization. And three, why conflict is so essential for the evolution of ideas. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F383. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you'll check out some of our cool stuff, such as the Gold Nugget email list, which gives you summary insight from Michael and all the guests who've gone before him and after. You can check out the notes, all the summary insight, wisdom in something you can read in about two to five minutes. That's called the Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Michael's story. Michael is the chief talent officer for General Motors, GM, if you will, where he launched GM 2020, a grassroots initiative designed to enable employees to positively disrupt the way they work, which was highlighted in Fast Company and Fortune magazines. Michael is the author of the book Adaptive Space, which is based on a decade-long research initiative that won the 2017 Walker Prize from People Plus Strategy. Big thanks to Michael for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Michael. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, me too. Me too. Well, you've got what sounds to me like a pretty fun job as the chief talent officer at General Motors. Can you orient us a little bit to what does that mean in practice? In essence, it's you know really about how do you optimize human capital you know, across the overall corporation? So how do we bring in the best people possible and you know, in short, I like to say, how do we bring in the best people possible and then bring the best out in those people? And, you know, that's that's all about human capital and how do we get those people positioned uh, to be able to leverage what they know? Um, so, so it's, yeah, it's quite, quite fun. Intriguing. Now, in practice, over the last few years, you've been doing a lot of bringing out the best in people, it sounds like. You know, if you look at the financial picture at General Motors in 2009, they're filing for bankruptcy. And now you got some great profits. And the business press would point to cultural shifts as being an essential part of making that transformation. So could you give us a little bit of the behind the scenes or in the middle of things narrative for how this came to be and the human capital pieces play into it? Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify, I joined the company in 2012. Uh, so I can tell you, I can describe that journey from that point forward and you know, more precisely around you know, the, this role here in HR um, and I, I do think it's about culture, right? I mean, it's certainly, 
it's been quite the journey. I can remember when Mary Barra took over as CEO, her first, one of her very first quotes and comments was, you know, this industry is going to change more in the next five years than it has in the last 50. And what that means is, you know, you need to rethink everything you're doing. And culture is a core element of that. It's not the only one. Um, it is either an enabler or a stifler of what you want to do with things like business strategy and, you know, how you're going to drive operational management, how you're going to, you know, think about, you know, new consumers and new business models and all that sort of stuff. So it's been a quite a comprehensive journey and, you know, from that point to this and with much of it still in front of us. Mm-hmm. Well, so could you give us a little bit of the particulars with regard to before the culture was more like this? And now it's more like that. And here are some of the key things we did to bring about that shift. Yeah. And again, I think it starts kind of with the industry, right? This this was an organization and an industry that was all about drive and execution, all about continuing to drive scale you know, across the world. And, and the game's changed quite a bit. It's now the future mobility. We now need to think about what are customers demanding? What are customers... The best illustration I can give of that, then I'll go back to the specifics of your question is, you know, people are moving to cities, you know, just to put it in a real live external marketplace example, people are moving into cities um, and, and, you know, everyone's becoming connected. So the way you think about mobility inside of a city versus, you know, mobility, you know, in a suburban environment is very different. So we need to then get the business to start thinking about things differently. And that, and that certainly requires us to, you know, instill new sets of behaviors and to challenge, you know, everybody to think bigger uh, than perhaps they had in the past. Uh, and again, to, to move faster as well, because, you know, the world outside is moving super fast compared to, you know, what we've been used to. All right. So it seems like we're changing sort of like the total focus in terms of what General Motors wants to be excellent at in order to succeed in a different environment with more people in cities and car sharing and ride services, sort of a different landscape than it was in 2009. And so I'm curious to hear, so what does that look like in terms of day in, day out, humans at GM interacting with other humans and how they're doing it differently now? One of the big things we did to start to drive this transformation is we plugged in a program that we call Transformational Leadership. And this was a partnership with Stanford it's a year-long cohort program with Stanford where we take the top of the organization, you know, 35 people on an annual basis, you know, go through this program. And the reason I call out that program is because it answers your question rather directly in that we're not just shifting to the future. We're, we're thinking both about the current state of the business and the future state of the business in the same moment. We call that ambidextrous leadership, if you will, and that came out of that program. And everything we talk about here is growth and core. You know, we, we've got to be excellent at the core of the business. You know, we've got to continue to be, you know, operations. You know, we have an operational excellence program. Operations have to be maniacally precise and door, everything we produce has to be durable and everything else. But at the same time, which is what makes it ambidextrous, we need to be thinking about the future. We need to be thinking about, you know, where, where is the customer of tomorrow going to be and how can we get there sooner than anybody else? So, you know, there's a lot of people talking about agility, you know, in the world today. And the way I like to talk about it is most large organizations shouldn't talk about themselves as being completely agile 
They need to be agile in places. They need to be agile on the ads. They need to be agile in the growth side of the business because the growth side of the business is where the future is. And, you know, they need to be disciplined and, and operationally excellent in the core. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the studies that I read recently that talks about this, and then I can share exactly how we're doing that, uh, was a McKinsey study where they said, you know, organizations need to be both fast and at fast at times and stable at other times. And about only 12% of the companies they reviewed were able to do those two things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that makes a ton of sense with regard to, boy, if you think about any organization, sort of what it can handle well and what it can't. And I even think about like customer service interactions, you know, in terms of like, mm-hmm. if you want to check your credit card balance or sort of get some basic information or get a replacement card or report a stolen card or do some fraud stuff or change the credit limit. It's like, that's kind of very basic. But you sort of go out beyond the edges, you know, suddenly it gets really, I guess, confusing for the people in terms of what they're trying to do. It's like, oh, we're really built up and tooled up to do these dozen things very quickly and efficiently and systematically. But now, you know, I'm trying to get my private mortgage insurance canceled (laughs) with my new... my new mortgage holder, because they transferred them over as they do. And it's been rather challenging. And it's like, no, 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 I, I understand your policy. But in fact, if you looked at the original text, the original mortgage, this is kind of how it's supposed to work. So can we do that? And they're just so flummoxed, like, oh, we're going to have to look into this, sir. So I think that's intriguing to think about it. And in some ways, you want to just be high scale, high efficiency with doing that thing repeatedly with, frankly, no innovation, because it's working great and other areas where you really got to adapt and see what's new and what are people starting to really ask for. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And it's funny that you mentioned banking as your example, because I grew up in banking. Yeah. And I remember that exact question coming to me at one point in time when I was asked by the president, the company I was working for, you know, Michael, how can we become more innovative? And I, I, I told the same story you just did a moment ago. You know, are you really sure you want to be innovative where you're driving precision and you know, you've built expectations for consumers and you want to be reliable and, you know, you want to create a consistent set of interactions. Or are you asking if you want to be innovative on the edges? And at that point in time, this was before mobile banking. So it's a great illustration. You know, when it comes to something like mobile banking before it had existed, you have to be innovative there because no one's ever done that, you know, at that point in time, no one had ever done that. And you have to be agile and you have to think differently. You have to move, shift, flux, understand the consumer, shift with the market. And you have to do that super fast. And that's that's where we are now as a company on things like, you know, car sharing and what we're doing with Maven, um, what we're doing with electrification, what we're doing with, you know, um, self-driving vehicles. You know, you have to be completely agile and you have to manage that set of the side of the business with a whole different set of muscles while continuing to keep an eye you know, on the core of the business and making sure that you're doing that flawlessly. I mean, the, my analogy for this is, you know, every organization is both a, a super tanker, you know, which is critical to getting stuff done precisely and at scale and a set of speedboats that are being, you know, sort of tossed out into the whitewater so that they can move fast and agilely shift with the environment. Um, and then ultimately grow themselves into what the next core of the business is and should be. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and can you talk a little bit about sort of the people practices that bring that about? I'd be curious to hear if in the course of having meetings or interactions one-on-one, you'd say, whereas before at GM, people more so, you know, spoke or interacted or accepted or challenged these kinds of things, you know, now it looks different in terms of their interactions. Yeah. So the first thing to know is that in that model, the error of one size fits all solutions isn't appropriate, right? You've got to use different solutions for the different parts of, of the model. So some of the practices are, you know, we use a lot of design thinking on the growth side of the business. We're out talking to consumers. We're out engaging consumers in Manhattan and San Francisco and places that, you know, we might not interact with on a day to day basis traditionally. And then we're, you know, we're thinking about how do we bring those ideas back into the business and connect up with other parts of the business, build bridges, if you will, to do agile design and to move fast. And, you know, Amazon calls them small two pizza teams, sort of very small teams that can, first of all, build something like a minimum viable product or solution. And then ultimately, the reason the bridges matter later is scale it. So that's the growth side of the business. Now, on the core side of the business, you just, you know, incrementally have to ask yourself the question, how do we make this better every single day? How do we, how do we continue to get more nimble and more agile, even in the core, so that, um, so that whenever the new growth part of the business, you know, comes to fruition, that, that the core is already ready to sort of cast it up on board and take it on. Mm-hmm. Well, so then informing these teams, can you give us an example of something that uh, you're able to quickly react to and how it was done? A couple different examples. I mean, the one that I can think of uh, most notably off the top of my head is what we've been doing with Maven, which I've mentioned already. You know, so Maven is our car sharing platform. Um, Maven, by its very definition, you know, is, you know, access to a vehicle as opposed to ownership of it. You know, and we, we sell cars in the core of the business. We continue to, will continue to for quite some time. But on the other hand, you know, just like there is, you know, Uber and Lyft, which are ride sharing applications, you know, there's a, there's a need to get from one point to the next inside of a city. And we found this sort of white space that no one was serving, which is how do you get outside of it? How do you not own a vehicle, but maybe, you know, take that vehicle for longer durations than just, you know, from one end of the city to the other end of the city. And maybe you've got it for a couple hours. You're driving it as opposed to, you know, someone picking you up and, and you're actually deploying an asset that uh, someone else's asset that may be sitting in the garage at some point in time. So, you know, we're, so this whole shared economy model, you know, we went out to be very precise. We went out and started interviewing people in the streets. It was in design thinking. And what we found out was, you know, uh, owning a vehicle inside of a city may be more of a burden than a benefit for some. Mm-hmm. But we can build a solution around that so that they still have access to a vehicle in such a way that, you know, they, they get the conveniences of it without the burdens of it. Mm-hmm. And that's where Maven really evolved from. That's cool. And so now you were big in pushing a concept called GM 2020 throughout the organization. And what does this mean? Yeah. So it's, again, we're now back in the core of the business. And, you know, one of the things we want to do is we want to think about the core of the business in regards to how do we build the culture where people just can't wait to show up to work the next day? People just really want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And so back in 2014, we launched this, I'll call it a movement 
um, we launched this movement where we invited, and this was you know back when we were really trying to attract young people into the organization. You know, we um, we were really just starting to, as corporations as a whole, you know, create different environments that were, you know, at that point in time, I would say were more millennial friendly. I don't believe that anymore. I think that's true for anyone and all of us. But we we launched this initiative where we we thought about okay, so if we were to create the cult, recreate the culture, or rethink culture, or rethink the workplace, you know, why not invite the people in the room that that will actually be living with those outputs in the year 2020. So literally using some design thinking methodologies and inviting 30 people into the, you know, a two-day event, we went out, we took them out on buses and we went and looked at all these creative workplaces, you know, first across Detroit. And that movement, that those 30 people ended up growing into a movement that we call GM 2020. How do we positively disrupt the way we work? Um, and, and they continue to grow into a much larger body of people. It's, it's closer, it's thousands now of people that show up into these events, um, you know, constantly thinking about how we can get better and all volunteers. Um, but, you know, constantly thinking about how we can organically get better on a day to day basis. Oh, that's excellent. And so then what have been some of the key adopted practices that have shown up in terms of doing work better and in a more enjoyable way? And the great part about this is, you know, the, all kinds of ideas emerge out of this. Perhaps my favorite story, there are plenty that I can share, but perhaps my favorite story was we were about ready to open up a new building. It was a 10 floor building uh, where, you know, generally what happens is, you know, you, you go in, you bring a facilities crew in, you bring in some, you know, some architects, they look around the space and they decide what the footprint should look like. And they, you know, they plug in standard furniture and everything else. Well, rather than approaching it that way, what we decided was why not invite the people who are going to be working in that space into designing it? So we did what we called a two-day collab, kind of like a hackathon, if you will, across two days. Um, We invited in 35 people. We put them into teams of five. um, And we asked them to, uh, we, we took them, we walked them through the space. We gave them the same parameters that any facilities team would have in regards to cost constraints and architectural barriers and all that sort of stuff. And we literally had these teams in teams of five, you know, build prototypes, you know, after, after getting all those constraints and talking to, you know, individual users, which were their fellow employees, we actually had them build prototypes of what that space should look like. Um, and they competed against each other. And at the end of, you know, I said two days, it was actually 24 hours from beginning to end, from 12 o'clock to one o'clock uh, the next day. And at 12 o'clock the next day, you know, they presented their working proto- physical prototypes to a design team. Um, and the winning team, you know, actually created the design of the way that that building ultimately was created. Very cool. And how did they like it? I mean, again, it was very different than perhaps what would have been designed for them. One of my favorite stories was the winning team, you know, actually cut a hole. They said, if you want to collaborate, you need to be able to look up and down across multiple floors. So they actually cut a hole in the center of the building in their prototype, three floors deep. And they said, this will be the collaboration zone. And, you know, the two floors above that will be the, you know, concentration, deep work zone. Well, I mean, so they, whenever they did that, well, of course, they're not architects, right? So they weren't thinking about how sound this was. So 
there was all this pushback on, yeah, 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 but architecturally that doesn't stand up. So I'm thrilled to say that, you know, that team ended up becoming part of the overall design team. And they didn't cut a hole in two floors, but they ended up cut or in three floors, but they ended up cutting it into two in order to make their solution work. So, so they were thrilled. And the short answer, they were thrilled at the end of the day with the new design. And that's like, that's not a huge example, but there are all kinds of those, you know, everyday examples that I'm giving you now. Um, like where people designed an onboarding app or, you know, people designed a, a learn and share so that they could do a career fair and all these little things that manifested throughout this community so that they're able to move really fast and organically, you know, create these new solutions. Well, that's interesting. And so with the hole in the floor, one person would stand on one floor, the other person stands on the floor above and they like look down at each other. Exactly. And you could accidentally, if you weren't paying attention, walk into a hole and fall down. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not quite that way. I mean, they, they had the railings and all that stuff up, but it's it was really much more to illustrate that, you know, we're not separating ourselves from different groups. Um, if we're going to collaborate, we at least need to have, you know, this, you know, sort of proximity to one another as opposed to, you know, hitting our floor button and showing up. And I mean, it's, again, a small thing, but, you know, as you engage people in making those decisions themselves, they become very, very proud about those outcomes and and they figure out how to iterate on it and make it better over time. Mm-hmm. And so people don't speak to each other through the floors. It's more of a symbolic. Yeah, absolutely. They see each other. OK, um, so they can certainly correspond back and forth. I guess I'm just, you know, sort of dispelling the safety myth. OK, gotcha. Well, the railings, certainly I, that makes sense. We got the safety yeah, yeah. covered. So they would, in fact, you know, speak through the hole from one floor to another. Completely. OK, that's cool. That's fun. All right. So now you've also got a book, Adaptive Space, that captures some of these principles that you put into practice. Can you sort of share with us what's the book all about? Yeah. And I've talked around a lot of it already, but it's this this core concept of, you know, why are some organizations adaptive and are able to you know, respond to changing the changing marketplace and other organizations, you know, perhaps aren't quite as adaptive. And as a researcher, so this was even prior to my time at coming to General Motors, as a researcher, you know, four of us actually launched a, a research initiative, went out and studied 60 different companies, all you know, Fortune, really 100 companies, and, and asked that question, you know, why are some adaptive and why are others not? And what we found, and, and this is the part that I talked around a bit already, is that, you know, those were, every single organization had two things. They had these, you know, sort of, Core systems, we call them operational systems, you know, which is the formality of how you get work done. And they all had entrepreneurial pockets. You know, even organizations that aren't adaptive have innovative entrepreneurial activities happening within them. What, what the adaptive ones had that the non-adaptive organizations didn't have was what, what we ultimately called adaptive space. But basically, it's the bridge to get those ideas through the organization and pulled into the formal systems. Uh, so think of it quite literally as how do you more intentionally mine the idea, everyday ideas throughout your organization, both big and small, in such a way that, you know, it becomes part of the adaptive fabric of, of an organization that can respond differently to the outside market. Mm-hmm. So that was more than a mouthful for you. And so then what are some of the practices associated with getting those bridges up and going, you know, in terms of 
these things make all the difference if you got them versus don't. Yeah, yeah. So the interesting part about this is it's a social phenomenon. So the interesting thing is the connections that you create inside of an organization are more important than I think we ever believed they were before. So think about it this way. You know, we all want to think about, you know, who are the, how do we build a bigger network and how do we build our network inside of an organization? What we discovered was your network matters immensely, but your network needs to be different and for different intentions. So, you know, I talk a lot about social capital. You know, I'm in the talent space and spend a lot of my time talking about human capital, but I also talk about social capital. Human capital is what you know. Social capital is how well positioned you are to leverage what you know. And remember, I said that, you know, every organization had entrepreneurial pockets, but not everybody was able to leverage that. And that was because they weren't connected appropriately. So, so a couple of the practices to get very precise with you is, you know, there are times where you need to create discovery networks. You know, a discovery network is a network that's actually going outside of the insular walls of an organization and finding out what the customers of tomorrow really need and want. You know, like the Maven story I shared with you a few moments ago. There are also times, but ideas are cheap. And, you know, organizations, all organizations have lots of ideas. You've got to bring those ideas into the world. Um, you know, it's important to have discovery connections because that's how you stay relevant. That's how you, you know, can move. You can, you can keep pace with the outside market, but you've got to, you've got to bring those ideas in and you've got to actually put them into very small, tight, what Amazon calls two pizza teams. Uh, we call that agile design in many organizations or scrum teams. That requires a different set of connections. If you, you know, you want, you want very trusted small groups of teams of maybe six that are taking ideas that were discovered and then bringing them into the world and iterating and moving fast. Um, and then once they built a minimum viable product, and this is where a lot of companies, you know, sort of fail. Uh, once you build a minimum viable product inside of a small pocket, you then have to start to think about how do I get that scaled on across the broader business? And that requires yet a different set of connections that we call diffusion connections. And, and that's, you know, when you think about those different practices, you know, it's a different set of connections and a different set of practices for each of those steps, if you will, as on any given product lifecycle or any given solution lifecycle into the business. Mm-hmm. And I'm really intrigued by the notion that you said the ideas are a dime a dozen. There's tons of them in a scaled organization. And so, boy, I, I imagine a critical lever that really is really make or break here is effectively choosing, selecting, deciding which of these ideas are worthy of getting a two pizza team to advance it and go after it a bit. So what are some of the key ways that these decisions can be made optimally? Yeah, so you've got to be disciplined in that process. So, you know, I, I say ideas are cheap. I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Um, they, they're cheap if they're not, if nothing's done with them, right? If somebody just shares an idea um, and they don't do anything with that idea to bring it to life, you know, then, then who knows if that was a good idea or not. So, I mean, an idea is nothing but an abstract. But if you actually take that idea and you build something around it and you go test that idea, which gets into your question, you know, the, the best way to find out if an idea is worthy is to actually build some aspect of it, you know, low resolution prototype and get out and test it. Test it first with some friends inside the, the business and, you know, find out if some colleagues get excited about it and then ultimately test it with consumers or would be consumers. 
Um, and then, you know, that's not enough because it's still, you know, this low resolution sort of, you know, fragment of an idea. It's, it's better than the idea itself, I should say, but it's still a fragment of a concept. So you then have to decide, okay, what are the thresholds to know whether or not we can, we can win with this idea or this is a real idea that would have real market impact or, you know, this is an idea that's worth our investment. And that's a whole different series of practices. And the only way to know that is to, you know, set up milestones around a concept or an idea um, and hold people accountable for getting to those milestones. And if they don't, you know, you, you kind of decommission it and you say, you know, we can only take so many of these at a time. We, you know, every organization has finite, a finite set of resources. So you just simply decide, you know, how many people am I going to invest in this idea? How many people, you know, what do they need to prove during, you know, between now and the next milestone, whatever that is. Um, and if they don't prove it, you know, do we have the courage to shut that idea down so that we can take those resources and reinvest them into something else? So in short, what you just heard me describe is there are parts of the organization where you need to act and think much like a startup. Right. I think that's excellent in terms of having that discipline and those clear thresholds that you're identifying. I guess I'm thinking about backing it up a little bit earlier in the process. I imagine, you know, GM has thousands of ideas emerging and you may only, you know, pilot test out, I don't know, dozens at a time. So why don't we say one out of 80, okay, little ratio shows up and gets the minimum viable product treatment. How do you decide what hits that initial threshold? Like, you know what, we are going to spend some time, money, resources, six people on this one. Yeah, and this is where I think it, it truly is a social phenomenon. Um, and I think our inclination, when you or I have a new idea, our inclination is to go take it to a leader and to go get it formalized. And that may be the, the worst idea possible. That may be the worst step forward possible because you don't even know if that idea is good at this stage. So what, what I am, and, the, and we've done this very much in the GM 2020 community where we basically say, if you think you've got a great idea, go find a friend. You know, that first friend is really social proof in your idea. That first friend, you know, somebody who you trust, somebody who you respect, somebody who you think would get this is your first litmus test. And once you share that idea with that friend, if they look at you like, this is, Michael, this is really stupid. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, you might just be wrong and you might, you know, you might just decide that it's time to shut it down. But if they're excited about it, then, you know, our next step, what we talk about a lot is go follow the energy. You know, if, if I share this idea with you and you're excited about the idea, then, okay, so who else might be excited about this idea? So at this point, it becomes, you know, more than, you know, it's Pete's idea, Mike's, Michael's idea together. And we go find, a, you know, a few more friends. And, you know, so this, what I'm describing to you is much more organic than mechanistic, which is how we want to tend to think about innovation inside of a company. And it's much more social than process driven. Mm -hmm. At some point, you need formal support. At some point, once you know you've created network buzz and people are excited about this idea and you know, they believe, not, and, and the beauty of this is it's co-created and it's no longer just my idea, it's all of our ideas and we can all find ourselves in it. Well, then the likelihood of securing support and resources is amplified tenfold. And that's, you know, that's the way 
that you get these, as I stated it earlier, these entrepreneurial pockets fired up and linked up across the broader organization for grander success. Mm, That's beautiful. Awesome. Well, any other kind of key practices you think the typical professional needs to know, or do you want to move ahead to hear about some of your favorite things? There's one thing that everybody who's listening to this conversation is wondering, okay, so that's all fine. That sounds great. But what about with the resistance? What about when somebody doesn't like my idea? Then what do I do? And one of the things that I like to talk about is conflict sometimes, I mean, charge into the conflict. The conflict later, once you believe your idea is good, once we've got a band of you know, a half dozen or so of us, then the conflict is really critical to the evolution of that idea. Uh, the conflict is essential to get it scaled. So one is take that conflict as a compliment because you're probably not doing anything innovative if you haven't created some disturbance. So charge into it and start to think about it. Oftentimes what I like to say is you can't really have a breakthrough without something to break through. Mm. So if you're not expecting some degree of resistance or some degree of conflict, then you're probably not being so bold. Um, so a lot of people ask me, well, what do you do with conflict and what happens whenever the antibodies kick in? And what I say is that's awesome. It's about how do you pivot in response to that? How do you bring them in to the process so that you can pressure test those ideas? You can morph them and you can challenge them in such a way that you make them bigger and more scalable, both within the business, but far more importantly, you know, outside into the marketplace. So I don't, I just would not want to underplay the value of tension even more than conflict. I wouldn't want to undervalue that. But I, what I will say is tension too early in the process actually prematurely kills ideas. Tension later in the process becomes almost like this pressure testing, you know, uh, sort of amplifier, if you will, to get liftoff sooner. That's cool. Thank you. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? You probably have noticed, even though I, I live inside of a human capital job, um, that, you know, social capital is an area that I spend a lot of my time. So one of my favorite quotes, and, and this will get a little bit into the conflict thing is it's a, it's a quote by Colonel Picune. And it's, you know, th- this quote goes like this. Five brave men who do not know each other well would not dare attack a lion. And, and I know that's masculine. So I'll pivot it in the next part of the, quote, you know, but five lesser brave men or women would do so resolutely. So I, I think this, you know, this is a team activity. Um, what I'm talking about has, you have to have friends, you have to find friends, you have to have people who are in it with you. And one of the things that, that I know is that if you try to do this alone, and you try to take all the credit for yourself, and you try to hold on to an idea, you try to hoard it, um, you know, and this idea can be anything, any kind of solution, you will not succeed. But if you find and enlist friends and you work together as a team, um, it, your chances of succeeding are amplified significantly. Mm, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So again, this whole networking space. So I studied, you know, a lot of network theory, the I guess the one that just jumps on at me right off the bat is a professor over at University of Michigan, Wayne Baker, a good friend of mine, you know, went out and studied, and we didn't even talk about this, but went out and studied um, energizers and people who bring energy into an organization, which is one of the core network roles that I talk a lot about. And what he found out was that 
you know, high performing agile adaptive organizations have three times as many energizers as average performing organizations. So, I mean, that's a study where, you know, in the HR space, we talk a lot about engagement. My belief is we're going to be talking much, much more about energy moving forward. Mm, intriguing. And how about a favorite book? I guess in the last couple of years, books that I've read, the one that jumps out the most is Adam Grant's uh, Give and Take, mm-hmm. Givers and Takers. And his whole philosophy, if you haven't read it, is that long-term givers, people who are constantly helping, supporting, and lifting each other up are the winners um, in the, the long-term game. So it's a phenomenal book. And how about a favorite habit? I think it's it's easy to live inside of an organization and become somewhat enculturated. So one of the disciplines, I don't know if this is a habit, one of the disciplines that I have instilled for myself is on my calendar, I have literally, this is what it says, critical distance day. And literally, like once every six weeks, I have a day on my calendar where I have pre-scheduled, you know, I'm getting out of the out of the day-to-day business and I'm going to go do something very, very different. I'm going to go talk to consumers. I'm going to go to a conference. I'm going to go you know, to a university campus, but I'm going to do something to refresh myself, to think differently than I would if I were just managing the daily business. Oh, thank you. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and gets quoted back to you frequently? You know, I guess the one that I think of is, you know, we live in the era of disruption. You know, we're all talking about digital disruption these days. And, and we want to talk about things like agile, but I, I personally believe that in the era of disruption, social is king. And we're going to be talking much more, much, much more about both energy and social capital as we move forward over the next decade. All right. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? So the book, there's a website for the book, adaptivespace.net. So they can certainly go out there. And I've talked a little bit around some different network roles. There's another website out there called um, networkroles.com that they can actually go, you know, sort of take a self-assessment to better understand, you know, their own individual network role. Mm-hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Stop talking about it and start doing it. Go find a friend. That first friend matters more than you could ever imagine. And, you know, finding a first friend to partner with on whatever it is that you're thinking about is is the first step forward. And, you know, we oftentimes think of things and oftentimes don't act on those. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Michael, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for sharing the good word. I wish you and GM lots of luck in all you're up to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. You know, my favorite thing that Michael said was one of the quickest, which was, if you have a great idea, don't go to an executive. That may be one of the worst things you can do. They're trying to say no, and they may immediately rain on your parade and kill and dampen your enthusiasm. Rather, the best move is to get a friend on board and then to enjoy that energy and momentum. And then you might go somewhere and be a little bit more motivated, engaged, excited about showing up to work and making something happen as opposed to, oh, they hate all of my ideas. This place is stupid. You know, that would not be a fun way to continue your adventure at that workplace. So very handy. Get a friend, not an executive on board first. Very good tip from Michael. Hope you dug that and more. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to albums we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep383. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next episode, which is not a guest, but rather it's a little Christmas Eve gift exchange. Intriguing. You have given me a gift recently. 
even if you don't know it. And I'm going to give you a gift. So we'll have some fun with that. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you.